Well, Christianity, uh, the way, as it was often referred to in the first century, is different than every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview, every other path to enlightenment because of Jesus Christ, because of who he actually is and because of what he did for mankind, which was something that no one else could do. No other religious leader or philosopher, none of the great thinkers or spiritual leaders throughout history have ever had the ability or, quite frankly, the desire to do what Jesus did, to take on the world's sin throughout all of time and die so that we might overcome death by his death and resurrection, which of course we'll talk about next week. But the only reason that any of that means anything significant, the only reason it actually works is because Jesus was God in the flesh, the only one who could ever accomplish what he accomplished by dying for us. And so every other belief system, every other religion can at best only offer us a temporary sense of relief, a temporary sense of peace or joy or fulfillment through our own effort, whether it's self-mutilation or paying some form of penance or some version of enlightenment through meditation. All of it requires us to reach some level of achievement before we can experience any reward. And so it is quite the opposite of Christianity as we just heard because in other religions you strive for your religion to attain temporary fulfillment. In Christianity you strive for Christ because he has already given you eternal fulfillment. With Christianity, as the video said, the payoff comes first, and whatever you do after that does not and cannot in any measure pay back or justify the reward that you've already been given because that part is a free gift. The reason that we run the race then and fight the good fight, as the Apostle Paul said, is because we want to, first of all, honor the God who bestowed that gift upon us by bringing glory to Him, and secondly, because we want as many others as possible to experience that reward as well. And so as Christ followers, although there is reward associated with our efforts, we're not working for God to get something. We're working for God because of what He's already given us, and we want to share that with other people, and that is quite literally the opposite of how other religions work, and that should be no surprise to us, because everything that Jesus did, in fact, seemed to go against convention, both religious convention and cultural convention. He was completely counter to the culture and the expectations of culture, and nowhere does that show up more than on Palm Sunday, also known as Passion Sunday, which of course we're celebrating today, the week before Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to talk about some of the paradigm-shattering aspects of Jesus' life that we should really constantly be reminding ourselves of, particularly on these days when we pause to recognize the greatest singular achievement in all of human history the atoning work of Jesus Christ through his death and subsequent resurrection. And this is not only a time of celebration for what he's done for us, but it is also a time of reflection, of course, on the life of Christ, but really also on our own lives. Because if all that we do, listen, if all that we do in here 
is study the life and death and resurrection of Christ without any personal response to that knowledge, then all we're doing is learning history together. That's just dead religion. And so as we celebrate what Jesus did for us and reflect on how he lived his life, we will also take some time this morning to consider the implications of that life as it applies to our lives today in a message this morning titled The Passion of the Christ. Again, uh, this Sunday before Easter is traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday. I'm sorry, it's a very emotional day for me to think about what Christ did for us or Passion Sunday as we refer to it, where we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before his death and resurrection. We use the term Palm Sunday because as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds cut palm branches from the trees and threw them down on the road before him and they they waved them in the air because palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory in their culture. And they were expecting great things from Jesus in that moment, including and probably mainly the liberation, their liberation through him from the Roman occupation by force if necessary. This triumphal entry was on the cusp at the beginning of the Passover, which was the time when the Jews, of course, would commemorate their liberation from Egypt. And so that was on everyone's mind as Jesus was riding in to the city here. But this day is also referred to as Passion Sunday. In fact, the entire week is referred to as Passion Week or Holy Week. So you have Maundy Thursday, which commemorates the Passover Supper or the Last Supper, Good Friday, which of course commemorates the crucifixion, Holy Saturday, which recognizes Jesus' time in the tomb, and then Passion Week concludes on Resurrection Sunday, what many call Easter Sunday, obviously to celebrate his resurrection. And, and so the English word passion has its roots in the Latin word passio, which means suffering. And so in the earliest uh, Latin translations of the Bible, as early as the uh, second century AD, the word passio or passion was exclusively used in theological uh, terms referring to the death of Jesus, always. So then like most words in the English language, the meaning of the word passion has evolved over the centuries and in the earliest stages of that evolution, it began taking on a broader meaning uh, beyond solely the death of Christ. And then sometime about the 13th century, right up through to today, the word passion has come to describe just about any really strong emotion. And, And because of that, I think the word has probably lost much of its potency. But again, its roots lie in the sufferings of Christ during this final week of his life on earth leading up to and including the crucifixion and resurrection. And what's so compelling about that to me is the application of the whole concept of passion to that final week of Jesus' life on earth. If you use that week to really define that term as it was intended to, uh, compared to the way that we apply that word to our lives today. And, And then when you look at what we can learn by reflecting on the differences. In other words, it's not necessarily wrong that the word passion has a broader meaning now than it did then. But if we could grasp what passion in the life of Christ looked like we stand to gain a whole new perspective on how to live with true passion, Christ-like passion in our lives today. And so, as I've studied these passages that we're looking at today, I've been asking myself this question, and I think really all followers of Jesus Christ should regularly ask ourselves this question. 
Am I truly living my life with Christ-like passion? Because I would, I would contend that on the whole, what we would typically describe as passionate behavior in the lives of people today probably doesn't always look like the kind of passion that we find in the life of Jesus Christ. And certainly it's not a new phenomenon because Jesus has been shattering people's expectations from the day he showed up on this earth in human skin, and he still is today. But just to hone in on the Passion Week that final week of his life before the crucifixion, just in that one week, Jesus systematically shatters the expectations of everyone around him as each day of that week progresses. The, the last week of his life on earth was the definition, really, of shattered expectations for both the Jews and the Gentiles, right? The, the Jews expected a king, in the line and tradition of David to come in on a war horse, what they got instead was a man in peasant's clothing accompanied by common people riding on a young donkey of peace. They expected validation as God's chosen people and what they got instead was driven out of the temple by Jesus for their sin. They expected religious pretentiousness and arrogance and what they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him, beating him, and cursing him, and ultimately killing him. For the Jews, Jesus was one shattered expectation after another. And to the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. In Acts 17, we find the Apostle Paul in Athens teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, but it says it was foolishness to them because the Gentiles believed only in human reason. As uh, George Renault put it, he says, reason tells you that babies aren't born to virgin girls. Reason tells you that God doesn't become flesh. Reason tells you that Almighty God will not allow puny men to nail him to a cross. Reason tells you that when a man dies, he cannot be resurrected back to life again. None of that makes any sense. So for the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. Jesus simply did not meet anyone's expectations, and yet he lived and died with such great passion and accomplished far beyond what anyone could have ever expected. So maybe... Maybe passion isn't exactly what we think it is. Maybe it doesn't look exactly like we think it does. And so I wonder what would our lives look like if we lived with the kind of passion that Jesus lived with? Maybe as followers of Jesus Christ, if we truly lived with the kind of passion that he lived with, maybe just maybe we would shatter some expectations ourselves. So we're going to pause our sermon series on Joseph for this week and next as we see what we can learn about the passion of Jesus Christ, not only in his death, but in his life as well as we focus on this last week of his life here on earth. Let's turn together to the gospel according to John chapter 12. We're going to work our way through verses 12 through 28 for our main text, and this is picking up the story just as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's read it together. John chapter 12, starting with verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, that had come to the feast that Jesus had heard, excuse me, that Jesus was coming 
to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So devout Jews were gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, right? We've all seen it in the movies uh, and on specials on TV, the crowds of people gathering on the sides of the road. Verse 12 describes it as a large crowd. In actuality, scholars estimate the crowd was probably over 2 million people. I don't know that we've ever had a cinematic rendering of this event, certainly not one that I've seen, that even comes close to what this scene must have actually looked like. The immensity of the crowd gathered to hail the entrance of the one who they expected would lead a revolt against their Roman oppressors. And they're shouting a couple of verses actually from Psalm 118. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent, hailing the Messiah as they throw palm branches down before him and wave them in the air. And we know from Luke 19 that shortly after this, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of his great passion for the people, which is driving him to do what would otherwise be unthinkable, to give up his life for these people who would gladly take it from him very soon. And yet, if this had been anyone else, probably any one of us, it would seem only appropriate and justifiable to find the biggest, best-looking, most fit and intimidating war horse that we could find and ride that majestic animal into Jerusalem before millions of people chanting your name and declaring you king of Israel. The only animal really that is befitting a king. And yet Jesus rides in on a donkey. The exact opposite of what you'd expect. And why? Why in the world? Given the opportunity before him to impress that many people. These people that he loves. That he's so passionate about. Why would he choose a donkey to ride into the city? Because true passion for others leaves no room for ego or arrogance. That's why Christ-like passion is always clothed in humility. Right? Everything that Jesus did was done with a humble heart. In fact, his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey was prophesied about 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9, which describes the coming of the humble king, it says, on the back of a donkey. It reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. True passion is always clothed in humility, which means there's no room for ego or self-centeredness or arrogance. And it's, it's not a false humility either. It's not simply acting a certain way. True humility is actually the state of one's heart. If you look at uh, Colossians 3.12, uh, Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And we know that in the purest sense, the word passion refers to suffering. And then the word compassion or compassionate in verse 12 here actually refers to co-suffering or suffering together. So in other words, Paul says, make your hearts like Christ's. Make your hearts compassionate. Hearts that suffer for each other, with each other. And then if we look at the rest of that verse, Paul explains what having a compassionate heart looks like. Again, Colossians 3.12, with the rest of the verse, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And that word humility, which is used throughout the New Testament in the, in the original Greek, it literally means a deep sense of one's own moral littleness. That's not simply acting humble, saying the right things, even doing the right things. It's more than that. True humility is a deep sense of one's own moral littleness. When we merely act humble, but we're not truly humble in heart, when we don't have that deep sense of our own littleness, but we appear to be humble, that is actually nothing more than a form of pride. Because we're pretending to be something that we're not in order to make ourselves look better in the eyes of others. But if we're truly living passionate lives, we have to be truly humble. Which means even when we don't agree with one another, in our marriages, at work, with our families, at church, when we still have to submit to one another in love and humility. And as Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3 in the next verse, uh, verse 13, excuse me, he says, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see, we, we tend to today think of passion as, as sort of going for it all. The more loud and proud we are about a cause or a candidate or relationship or, or something in our lives, then the more passionate we must be. But just as Jesus shattered the expectations of everyone as he rode into town on a lowly donkey, so too must we, if we really want to live with passion in our marriages at our jobs, passion in our relationships, in our families, in our ministry. We have to have a deep sense of our own littleness. And I would add to that an even deeper sense of the greatness of God. And then humble ourselves before others because true humility is one of the hallmarks of true passion. That's just what, what Jesus modeled for us as he entered Jerusalem. Let's keep reading our story, verses 16 through 19. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard uh, he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So verse 16 says that not even Jesus' closest friends understood all that was happening. And I'll just mention that if you follow Christ and keep your heart humbled toward him and toward others and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, there will be times when other people, including your closest friends, sometimes including your family, there will be times when they will not always understand why you're doing what you're doing or why you're saying what you're saying or helping who you're helping or going where you're going because following Christ passionately often looks like the opposite of what we think it should look like. And so as we pursue his leading with true humility, others will, they, they absolutely will question your choices. 
your decisions, your actions, and your direction. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced what I'm talking about firsthand. And for those of you who haven't, you can just write this down and go ahead and post it on your refrigerator for future reference. When you live with Christ-like passion, you will be misunderstood. When you live with Christ-like passion, you will be misunderstood by the world, of course, but also by Christians at times, and even your friends, and even your best friends, and even your family members. Because Christ-like passion looks nothing like worldly passion. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, people get confused about this passage sometimes, and I understand that because we're supposed to love each other and take care of each other. That's true. So why does Jesus say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that word hate in verse 26 is actually a Semitic expression. It means to love less. In other words, Jesus was saying, you have to love me more than anything or anyone else in your life, including and especially yourself, if you're going to follow me. Which goes right back to humility, that deep sense of our own littleness next to God. And so when he calls you to quit your job and sell everything and move 4,000 miles away to the Arctic, or he calls you to quit your job and move across town to a different company, or to go into a ministry situation that you don't know anything about and have no experience with. When he calls you to uh, seek a relationship that you thought was long over, or to end a relationship that you thought was all good, people won't understand. Your family may not understand. Some people will look at you like you're crazy. Several people told me I was crazy when we packed up and moved to Alaska. I wasn't crazy at all. It's just that for the first time in my life, I was truly passionate about following Jesus. And so I had to humble myself and sell all my stuff and become someone's employee again. I'd been self-employed for over 10 years at that point. I had to go back to school earn a fifth of the income that I was used to and live in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment inside the church. But I had a passion for Christ that wasn't there before, a passion to follow him, and it was greater for once than my passion to satisfy my own material desires. For the first time in my life, and a lot of people, I'm just telling you, couldn't understand that. And that's okay. Because I knew I was right where he wanted me to be, all right? When you live... With Christ-like passion, you will be humble and at times 
you will be misunderstood. We see that even with Jesus when his closest friends didn't understand his entrance into Jerusalem until much later. Let's keep reading verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so Jesus just continues to torpedo people's expectations. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's teaching them just before he models for them the fact that Christ-like passion always leads to sacrifice. There's no way around this aspect of following him and living with passion like he did. You cannot get around it. Of course, that doesn't keep us from trying sometimes, does it? I tried for most of my life to follow Christ and to satisfy all of my personal material desires at the same time. And I'll just tell you, it doesn't work. You simply cannot live with true passion and not experience life-altering sacrifice. You can't live with Christ-like passion and not experience life-altering sacrifice because living for Christ always means dying to ourselves. Remember Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple cannot be. He, he didn't really leave a whole lot of room there for debate, did he? Not a lot of room for alternate interpretations or lengthy discussions about what he might have meant. He simply said, whoever does not bear his own cross, which means to embrace God's will as our own is put to death, come after me, you cannot be my disciple. That is shocking if you really stop to think about it, and yet I believe that in the modern church, much of the modern church, at least in the West, we've made that requirement by Jesus himself is optional for us today. He said, you have no choice if you want to be my disciple, but to sacrifice everything else in your life in order to put me first. You can have those other things, but I have to be first. But we, we treat this non-negotiable command by Jesus as if it's negotiable, optional. We've hijacked the doctrines of free will and unmerited grace to become an easy gospel that requires nothing more of us than to say a sinner's prayer and then continue living as we always have without ever giving up anything for Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that many professing Christians are in for a very rude awakening when the realization finally comes in this life or the next that without total sacrifice, without giving up every single thing in our lives that usurps the lordship of Christ in our hearts, we cannot be his disciples. Following Jesus will always, without exception, it will require you to sacrifice. There's simply no way around it. And that has nothing to do, by the way, with earning our salvation. We cannot earn 
our salvation. It has rather everything to do with being able to follow him where he leads us, you see. You cannot scale the mountain that he's calling you to climb as long as you have all of your earthly possessions and relationships and dreams and desires if they've become idols in your life. You can't climb that mountain with all those things strapped to your back. Jesus isn't saying the only way you can earn your salvation is to work really, really hard. No, that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying the only way you'll ever be able to follow me, where I'm going to lead you, the only way you'll ever be able to accept that true invitation, salvation, to be my disciple, to follow me where I'm getting ready to lead you, is if you let go of everything else that is weighing you down, everything else that holds your affections over me. And so we have to sacrifice all that, weighs, that which weighs us down. And as you probably know, that's not easy to do. Sacrifice never feels safe. It's not the conservative thing to do. It's, it's risky. It's uncomfortable. But sacrifice when it comes to God's plan is also, listen, it's giving something up, yes, to gain something infinitely better. And Jesus understood that. He had that kind of passion to do the will of the Father, the kind of passion that gives up everything else necessary to be able to follow God, even his own life. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The word troubled in verse 27, there's the Greek word terasso. It means to be stirred up or unsettled. And so just after explaining that his time to die has come, back in verse 23, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. He says, is my soul stirred up, unsettled? And of course, we know that it was because of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he continues, what should I do? Should I beg the Father? To spare me? Well, he does that later in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at the same time, he understands that he must be obedient to the Father's will no matter the cost to him personally. So he answers his own question. He says, I know that it is for this purpose to die that I'm here. And so I must be obedient to my calling which he expresses when he says, Father, glorify your name because Jesus knew that in his own death the Father would be glorified. In other words, I will be obedient to the calling before me no matter how difficult it becomes. Okay, Christ-like passion means total obedience to the Father's will. And again, I think this is one of those aspects of true passion that we get mixed up about because we tend to associate passion with any really strong feelings, not necessarily with denying our really strong feelings in order to satisfy the will of the Father. But that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. He denied his own really strong feelings in order to satisfy the Father's will. He was obedient to his calling at the expense of his own really strong feelings. And that is true passion, the willingness to be obedient to the Father's will even when it costs us what we want. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time at all, you know how difficult that can be. It is so hard sometimes for me, still, to deny what I want 
in deference to what he wants. And of course, sometimes I still choose what I want over what he wants because my Christ-like passion has yet to be perfected. It's a long way off. But there's some strong words in Scripture about obedience. Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, you can't call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you. If you refuse to obey my commands, then I am clearly not your Lord. Confession. Listen, confession without obedience is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. Gee, that, that makes me shake sometimes at night. Have I, have I only confessed you? He also said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 8, 21. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, confession without obedience is worthless. And Jesus shows us by his own actions that true passion means being obedient to the will of God in our lives, even at the expense of our own feelings, if need be. And of course, sometimes our feelings are right in line with the will of the Father, and that's always preferable. It certainly is to me, but there will be times where what he wants is not in line with what we want. I'm sure you've experienced that. I have many times. That is when the metal of our Christ-like passion is tested through our obedience. And I fail often, miserably, sometimes. That's the beauty of following Jesus Christ. He allows us to get back up and continue on with him. You see, he doesn't shut us out when we fall down, when we fail. He doesn't push us away. But we can get right back up and follow him right back to the cross and lay all of that failure right down at the foot of it and continue on with him. That's the wonderful thing about this faith. You see, it's not a dead religion where we can earn anything. It's a free gift that we accept from him. So do you want to be passionate about your marriage? Then I would say be humble, be obedient, be willing to sacrifice, knowing that at times you will be misunderstood. Do you want to be passionate about your work? Be humble, be obedient, willing to sacrifice and accept that your coworkers won't always understand your motivation to go above and beyond even when you don't have to. Do you want to be passionate about God and your ministry? Then be humble, be obedient, willing to sacrifice, understanding that at times you will be misunderstood even by those who are closest to you. That is the definition of passion. And by the way, that is also the recipe for real achievement in your own life. When you live with Christ-like passion, no one in history has ever accomplished anything great without passion. And so I just would ask this morning, do you want to move from where you are beyond where you are now in your life today? Do you want to move beyond that? Because you'll never be able to move beyond where you are without true passion, Christ-like passion. No one has ever achieved anything great in this world by being indifferent, 
by being content with how things are, the status quo. However, when driven by true passion, we see God accomplish great things, amazing things throughout history through people who lived with a true sense of passion. It's the same for the church. This church will never be able to move beyond where it is without people who are passionate about the vision to go beyond where we are now in order to reach people on a larger scale, to affect our local culture for the sake of the kingdom of God, to plant other churches, to spread the gospel at home and abroad. But we won't accomplish any of that with any degree of sustained success without passionate people who are passionate for that vision. We, we must have Christ-like passion. We have to be humble. We have to be obedient. We have to be willing to sacrifice, to give something up in order to gain something better, knowing that we will often be misunderstood if we're going to move beyond where we are to where he's leading us. And of course, if you need a, a picture of what that looks like, we need not look any further than what Jesus did for you and me. His ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. He expects nothing less from us than for us to lay our lives down for one another, ultimately for him. That's why you're here, I know. That's why you come every week. It's why you continue to be a part of the church. God wants to do great things through you. We're not always going to get it right. At times we'll fail miserably. It's okay. We need to pick ourselves back up and keep moving. We need to pick one another up and keep moving forward as we follow him. He was humble. He was obedient. He was greatly misunderstood and he sacrificed everything for us. So to repeat the question, do I truly have Christ-like passion in my life? If we're going to move beyond our current status, then you'll have to. You'll have to have that kind of passion. And now that we know what that really means, I would just say let's do something about it. In humility, let's together, let's give up anything and everything that stands in the way of us obediently following him, even if it makes no sense to the rest of the world. Let's be passionate people. Truly, Christ-like people. 